Australia is a vast continent, lots of desert, plains, mountains, rainforests and the majestic coastline. But it's at the coastline that it seems so feeble, just reduced to sand on the shore by the power of the ocean. But that doesn't deny the reality of the continent as a whole. Neither does the fact that the ocean is reduced to tiny ripples by the beach deny the reality of the ocean's vast depths and expanse. There's two realities there that we have to hold together when we look at our world. In the book of Lamentations, behind that, there are two realities. There's great suffering and evil on the one hand, and on the other, a great and good God. The riches of this book for people of faith, in particular of chapter 3, is that these two great realities are both affirmed. The writer recognises both and doesn't limit or diminish the other. So as people of faith, we're invited to be real and we're also invited to find hope. If you presently have ever or will ever in the future long for relief while enduring suffering, or if you'd long for both relief and justice in the midst of suffering, chapter 3 has some gems for you. I'm going to try and do justice to it, but it is an amazing chapter, and I know I can't do justice to it, so please put aside five minutes, uh, ten minutes tomorrow, read over it again. Hopefully what we do in the next 20 will give you something to help you drink deeply from Lamentations chapter 3. I've got two headings, the hopelessness of remembering God and the hope for relief from remembering God's love. The hopelessness of remembering God. A a quick reminder from last week that Lamentations is written at a time of great hopelessness. It seems to have been written really close to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. At the end of an 18-month siege, the army of Babylon broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Most buildings, including the king's palace and the temple, were destroyed, looted, left to rubble. The victorious Babylonian army were brutal. Many people were marched a thousand miles north into exile in Babylon. The ones that weren't killed or had already died of starvation during the siege. It was the lowest point in Israel's history and worst of all was that God had abandoned them to their fate. God didn't help them when the Babylonian army showed up. We saw a lot of the pain and despair of the people in chapters 1 and 2 last week and chapter 3 opens with more pain and despair. Remember last week we saw there's a really proper place for lament, for laying your suffering before God. But as we read the first 18 verses, you sort of can't help but wondering, oh, has he gone a bit too far here? He almost seems to accuse God of being unjust. I guess it shows you the pain that he's going through. Before going on, uh, note that it seems that the poet, as I called him last week, comes out a little bit from behind his pen here in chapter 3. He doesn't give us his name, but he calls himself in the beginning, The Man. He's still a very skilled poet, though. Uh, Last week I shared that if you could read the original Hebrew, 
and if I could read it also, I'm not pretending I can, I got out of Hebrew after the end of term one of first year. Um, if you could read it, though, in the original language, you would see that each of the 22 three-line verses of chapter 1 and 2 begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you found that amazing as I did, well, join me in my astonishment at learning that here in chapter 3, each line of every three-line verse begins with the same Hebrew alphabet letter. So if their first letter was A, then the first three lines of chapter 3 all begin with a word with beginning with A. Amazing. And that's why the people who decided centuries later to put verse numbers in our Bible uh, gave each new line a new verse number. That's how we get 66 verses from 22 sets of three lines in chapter 3. The poet's not only clever, though, he is a sufferer. It's clear that the poet's been living through the siege and destruction. So 3 verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Strong stuff. God sounds like the enemy. And there's much more like that in the first 18 verses. I want to show you one more example from verse 10. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. You thought it was the Babylonians who besieged Jerusalem. Well, they were God's instrument of judgment on his people. The Lord's portrayed here as mean and and violent. And whether he is is not the point, this is how the man is experiencing God as he suffers at the hands of the Babylonians. With a foe like that and the looting and destruction like that which occurred at Jerusalem, is it any wonder that the man feels hopeless? Look at verse 18. So I say, my splendour is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. At this point, after the first 18 angry verses, we might expect the man to completely give up on God. He doesn't think like he can expect anything good from God. When it comes to God, this man is hopeless. I wonder if you ever feel hopeless because of what you are suffering. Do you ever feel like your plaguing sickness will never be healed or diminished? Or maybe that person who gives you real ongoing grief seems to just get away with it, that there's no justice. Lamentations gives you the language, gives you the licence to honestly express your very real pain to God. But it doesn't end there. The man doesn't end it there. So we move to a second point, hope for relief from remembering God's love. At half-time in last Sunday night's NRL Grand Final, Melbourne were leading Penrith by 22 points to nil. The, the young Penrith players had looked nervous and made a number of mistakes and bad decisions during the first half. And they were made to pay by their very relaxed opponent. The question in my mind, as I watched the players trump wander off, and Penrith are famous for all running off together, 
What would you say to your team if you were the Penrith coach? What would you say to try and give them hope and direction that they could come back in the second half? I don't know what he said, but surprisingly, they almost did achieve that comeback. What do you say to someone who is hopeless? It'll be okay. It's pathetic, isn't it? And here's the big surprise of Lamentations chapter 3. The poet engages in a bit of self-talk, but it isn't that sort of lame, positive thinking that professional sports people sometimes adopt. I heard one NRL player say recently that before a game, the way he prepares himself for the game is to sit in the dressing room telling himself, you are the best. You are the best player on the field today. Well, given his performance for North Queensland and his injuries during the season, I don't think he should take up motivational speaking after his NRL career ends. Want to go from hopeless to hopeful in three lines? Look at the poet's self-talk here in verse 21. We need to read it from 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And what's going to follow is remarkable and surprising given all the lament and complaint so far in this book. How does someone who in verse 5 of chapter 3 writes, he has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship, how does he then to go on to write verse 25? The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. You sort of think, has all the stress this man been under led him to some sort of split personality experience? On the one hand, angry and despairing, and then the other, hopeful and trusting. How does he get from there to here? Well, it's through... A determined effort. That's what he's describing in verse 21. He can't forget the pain. He remembers it all, verse 19 and 20. But by a mighty effort, by a mighty effort, he calls to mind something else in the midst of the pain. It's a conscious choice. I will think of this. I will call this to mind. It isn't something that just pops into his mind unbidden. This man makes himself remember what he knows, remember what is true. He has to take charge because everything else at the moment threatens to drive him deeper into despair. Like if you got caught in a storm yesterday, drenched with rain while walking the dog maybe, you didn't give in to the sodden clothes and the walking shoes that had morphed into two private swimming pools for your toes, No, you brought to mind your front door where you could toss off the shoes, step into the dry, or maybe you've pictured uh, dripping your way down the hallway as you got into the shower. You had something to keep you going. You didn't just collapse in a heap in the middle of the rainstorm. Well, here, when everything around him says, God doesn't love you, The poet has to remember the great truth, God does love you. Verse 22, this is how he expresses it. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. That that expression, the Lord's great love, isn't just crosses in a birthday card 
or a feeling of attraction or desire for someone who looks good or makes interesting conversation. No, this is an expression, an Old Testament expression, for the Lord's covenant love for Israel. It's describing God's committed choice to choose Abraham and his descendants to specially receive his blessing and favour. It's the same determination, the covenant love, which led him to save them from slavery in Egypt, to set them up with laws and a sacrificial system so they could live as his special people. And that determined commitment meant he cared for them, he helped them conquer a land of their own, he protected them from enemies and he forgave them again and again and again. We hear the Lord love and we think of being attracted to someone and falling in love. Here it is just the opposite. Do you really think that the Israelites were more attractive than any other people group to the God of all? No, God loved them when he promised to make and bless them as his people, even though he knew they'd struggle to be faithful in return. Fundamentally, the poet at this point, through a great effort of will, brings to mind God's great love as a reminder that Israel won't be completely destroyed. He is, after all, as he told Moses in Exodus 34, you remember this little scene in Exodus, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So his compassions won't run out or be exhausted. You don't get to the bottom of the box and find it empty with God. No, verse 23, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Since God is faithful to his promises, then he continues each day, each morning, to be compassionate and loving to his people. And for the first time just there, the man has addressed God directly. The first time in Lamentations, the man addresses God directly. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that a long way from some of the earlier laments? Now, we sang uh, the hymn, the famous hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness, at the start of our service. That hymn is based on these words. But most of us, when we sing the hymn, don't realise just how extraordinary um, the words are because they come from the midst of this massive, massive suffering. Uh, we just sing it thinking, yeah, you've given us our food and our families and our salvation and thank you, you are faithful. And that is, yeah, God, God is loving and good. And it's, so it's a good hymn. But it's all the more powerful, don't you think, when you realise where it came from. Those words uh, that we're seeing here, verse 22 and 23, they're famous fridge magnet verses that encourage people. But there's a depth in them when you read them here, isn't it? The man's showing here that in the midst of suffering, lamentation should not be the only response of those who believe and are broken. The man's remembering that no matter what God has done or not done, God is the proven God of committed love, compassion and faithfulness. He's that 
So all God's actions have to be viewed in that light, even if it stretches our belief to its limits. At this point in Lamentations, our man's no longer drowning in his pain and his anguish. His deliberate act of remembering God's character based on past actions has led him to utter the surprising words, for Lamentations at least, at verse 25. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the man who was crying out to the Lord and will, by the end of this chapter, be back to crying out and pleading with the Lord. This man has recognised what had happened here is God's punishment for Israel's sin, that his forgiveness has been exhausted by decades of mistreatment of the vulnerable in Israelite society and the idolatrous worship of pagan gods. But now he remembers that the Lord is good to those who depend on him, that he will give them salvation. It must be really hard, don't you think, to believe this for the man sitting amongst the rubble of Jerusalem, maybe even smelling the stench of death. It was easier to cry out in complaint, as he has been doing and will do again, but he urges himself here, wait in hope, even in the difficult circumstances. Verse 29, let him bury his face in the dust. This is about all he's got. There may yet be hope. And there will be hope because, verse 31, because the God of love can't help himself. I love this. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. As the holy God, he can't ignore sin, injustice and rejection. But he does not punish forever. He does not punish his people forever. He gained no joy or satisfaction out of the destruction of Jerusalem. It must have brought tears to his eyes because in his very being, at his base, God is love. There's, there's a really important truth here. Don't equate God's love and God's anger as if they're equal attributes of God, as if one equally offsets the other to give God a sort of balanced character. No, God is love is the Bible teaching. God is not anger. As we saw in that self-description God gave Moses in Exodus, as he passed in front of Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God is slow to anger, but abounding in love and faithfulness. God is love. God is not anger. We saw last week that in the absence of a direct word from God, we can't assume that someone's suffering is a punishment from God. That means that for most of us, our suffering will just be something that arises from life in a fallen world where people are sinful and flawed, flawed, so our bodies are slowly dying 
Our institutions are often inept. But that doesn't mean that our suffering will be any less painful. In your suffering, force yourself to a change of perspective like the man does here in Lamentations 3. God loves you even when it doesn't seem like it. And how do you do that then? How do you have that change of perspective? Well, a few thoughts. We've got to recall the New Testament truths that we already know. So as we saw in the first reading that Chrissy brought us from Romans chapter 5, God loves you so much that even while you were still sinners, still an enemy of God, Christ died for you. He must really love you. He didn't die for you because you were so good and attractive and he so much wanted you on the team. We're told in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we read earlier in that same chapter of Romans 5, God in his wisdom uses our suffering to grow us in our dependence and our walk with him. It's um, where the bit that talks about uh, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, hope. Interesting, it's the word hope, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it talks about God's fatherly discipline, not meaning punishment, but meaning he's training us, helping us to grow more in our godly character. So God is at work in our suffering, even when it's hard and we can't see the point of it. And the New Testament makes it really clear, and let's remember this, that God's love will mean that he will finally make sure his people are with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying or pain. That is our ultimate hope, and that is what we hold on to, even through the difficulties. But that doesn't mean you can't cry out to God for relief or help. He he wants you to do so. Remember though who you're crying out to. It's your loving Heavenly Father who Jesus reminds us loves to give good gifts to his children even more than earthly fathers do. The other thing sometimes I know all these words you if you're really suffering you think I can't do that I just numb I just well Can I encourage you, one of the habits that people can develop when they're really suffering is to withdraw from others, withdraw from Christian fellowship. I want to encourage you not to do that because as we meet together, as we are going to in a moment, we remind each other of God's love. We're going to have the Lord's Supper today to remind each other of God's great love. We, we often say the creed together. I worked this out when I'd already had the service prepared. We should have said the creed today because that would have helped us to recall these great truths of God, that he is a good God and that he is powerful and that he does have a plan for us uh, in eternity. There's great value. Don't stop meeting with your brothers and sisters when you're suffering. Calling to God for help is where the rest of Lamentations gets to. It's a particular sort of help, that of vengeance or justice on the enemies of Israel who've been so brutal to her. We're not going to look at that today. 66 verses was just too much for one sermon with the richness of these last few verses that we've looked at to to look at first. 
We're going to see the hope for justice uh, in future next week. At this point, though, let us uh, go back to my opening illustration about how the, the, the sea in one sense makes the continent look feeble and then the continent in another sense uh, makes the sea look feeble, but they're both true. Uh, take this away. Yes, you suffer, but yes, God loves you even when you can't feel it. Do whatever you can do to make force that mind shift, that perspective change to remember God's love, which we're going to do in a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing.